If you didn't get an outline when you came in, uh, you might want to see if there's any left from the ushers because you'll be lost uh, without it. That's assuming that you want to follow along. I don't know. I'm just assuming the best that everybody here wants to follow along. You have some extra outlines if you want one. Tom's got some there. Uh, Just raise your hand up. Oh, he's leaving now. He's coming back. There's that over here if you want to raise your hand, if you want an outline to follow. And go ahead and turn to, uh, let me see, I can't remember if it's first or second. Second Chronicles, thanks. <laughs> I don't even remember what I wrote. Oh, I do now. Turn to Second Chronicles 33 uh, in your Old Testament, and I'll be there eventually. So you just go there and you wait for me, uh, and I'll get there eventually. You know, there's an old group from the 60s that I kind of like. Uh, and the group's name was the Herman's Hermits. I don't know. How many of you know who Herman's Hermits are? Yeah, everybody in the back, nobody in the front. So, uh, But they sang that song, It's a Wonderful World, not the slow ballad. But you remember the one uh, uh, where the line is uh, something about, I don't know much about history. I don't know much biology. I don't remember any of the French I took and so on and so forth. But... Yeah, I love history. Most people don't like history, but uh, I like what Winston Churchill, who was prime minister of England during World War Two, he said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, you know, and the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is a history book. Uh, and there's a lot in there that we should be taking note of to warn us. Uh, and 2017 is going to be a very important historical anniversary 2017, particularly October 31st, 2017, is going to be the 500th anniversary of what event? Does anyone know? Oh, who said that? Raise your hand. Oh, Dave. All right. I should have known. You're smart. Okay. I'll give you a gold star anyway. Yeah. It's the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Some of you are thinking, what are you talking about? Uh That's a shame. We're going to encourage you to find out what I'm talking about. Uh, There's going to be a year long celebration, especially around the area of Wittburg and Dresden uh, in eastern uh, Germany, uh, where on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther had 95 complaints against the Catholic Church. So he nailed them to the door of the castle there. And thus was the official beginning of the Protestant Reformation. What I want us to look at this morning is we're going to compare a Reformation that occurred in the nation of Judah under King Josiah with the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century in Europe to what we need in America today. And my point that I want to make is that all three situations are the same. And we'll see why in a moment. First of all, these are not my original thoughts. This is a sermon that I hijacked from someone else uh, because I heard it and I thought, wow, is that good? Uh, So I took it, wrestled with it, tweaked it just a little bit. But for the most part, uh, it's not original, but I thought it was good. So the topic of Reformation this morning has major implications for us today both corporately as a church, as a nation, but also personally, because it affects the way that we do ministry as Christians. 
And I believe every scripture reference that I'm going to mention, I have put on your outline so you don't have to scramble around. There won't be very many slides today. Uh, the scripture verses, the passage reference I put on the outline. Hebrews 4.12. Do you remember that verse? That the word of God is what and what? Living and active. Kind of the opposite of the facial expressions I'm getting right now. Dead and tired. Let's do it again. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. The word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the what the heart. How can it do this? Because the word of God is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is a living book. It actively convicts the heart as it pierces the innermost parts of our soul. It's like a sword. Paul calls it the sword of the spirit for a reason in Ephesians 6. It's a precise instrument in the hands of the divine author. And when the word of God goes forth, it never returns without some effect because it is God himself who energizes and empowers the scriptures that we have. We should all be familiar with the heroes of the Reformation, once again, officially beginning in 1517. And if we're not, then I would encourage you to study to become familiar with some of these brothers and sisters in Christ. You should know names like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, the great Scottish Presbyterian reformer and William Tyndale. If we had time this morning, we could look at some of their amazing stories. Like with Luther, Luther met his future wife because he was rescuing her out of a nunnery in a fish barrel. Ugh. But that's how he met her for the first time. She got saved and wanted out of that nunnery. But under threat of death, he had to sneak her out of there. John Calvin was almost run through by a sword one Sunday morning in church. Just looking for swords. Because he refused to give communion to a sinner who would not repent. John Knox spent two years as a galley slave on a French ship for his faith. And Tyndale was hunted all over Europe by royal spies because he was trying to translate the New Testament into English. So the everyday person could read it. And that's one of the reasons I love church history, because of the amazing stories, those powerful accounts of courage and faithfulness of men and women who lived centuries ago and leave behind for us a pattern of faithfulness so that we can follow in their footsteps. But it's important to recognize that the ultimate credit for the Reformation doesn't go to the courage or the cleverness of any of these people who lived five centuries ago. It wasn't their creativity that brought about one of the greatest revivals in church history. And it wasn't the result of church growth strategies or ingenious marketing plans or seeker driven fads that caused the Reformation. What caused the Protestant Reformation was not Martin Luther nailing 95 complaints on a church castle door in 1517. In fact, he himself goes on record to point out that it wasn't any of his own writings that he thought ignited this Reformation. 
He gave all the credit to God and to God's word. Near the end of his life, he told his wife, all I've done is put forth and preach and write the word of God. And apart from that, I've done nothing. It is the word that has done great things. I have done nothing. The word has done and achieved everything. And he also added, by the word, the earth has been subdued, Luther said. By the word, the church has been saved. And by the word, the church shall be reestablished. Martin Luther understood what caused the Reformation. It wasn't himself. He recognized that the word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that was made available to people in a language which they could understand... And then as their ears were exposed to the truth of God's word, their hearts were convicted and their lives were transformed. And that's what we mean when we talk about revival and reformation. It was that very power of God in the scripture that transformed Luther's own heart. He was simply reading in the book of Romans by himself and got saved. Now, the Roman Catholic Church at that time, of course, had imprisoned the word of God for a thousand years by placing it in the Latin language, a language that hardly anyone understood or spoke in 16th century Europe. And the primary contribution of the reformers is that they unlocked the scriptures by translating the Bible in a language that people could understand. And once people were given access to the scriptures in their own language, Reformation was inevitable. And we can trace this commitment to the scriptures even before the lives of the reformers in the 16th century. They were pre-Reformation people exhibiting the same kind of commitment to the authority and sufficiency of scripture. We could talk about a group of believers called the Waldensians who lived in the 1100s and they translated the New Testament out of the Latin into their own regional French dialects. And according to tradition, these Waldensian families in this part of France were each given separate large portions of scripture and told to memorize those sections of scripture. And so these family units would commit large portions of scripture to memory So that when the Roman Catholic authorities showed up to their homes, confiscated their Bibles, piled them up and burned them, that the Waldensian families would simply come together and reproduce the scriptures from memory that had just been destroyed. What do we do with the scriptures that we have? In the 14th century, in the 13th, 1300s, John Wycliffe was at Oxford University in England, and he and his associates translated the Bible from Latin into English. And his followers would go throughout the whole English countryside, and they would preach, and they would read scripture, and they would sing the words of God in English. His followers were called Lollards, L-O-L-L-A-R-D-S. In the 15th century... In an area that was then known as Bohemia, which we would call today the Czech Republic, with the capital being Prague, there was a man named Jan Hus who preached in the language of the people. And it made him extremely popular. This is in the 1400s. 
As many as 3,000 people a week would attend his Bethlehem Chapel church. And yet, the Catholic Church said, he had the audacity to preach that Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. And as a result, he was arrested, falsely accused, and was burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church. Those that burned him at the stake used John Wycliffe's Bible manuscripts as kindling for his fire. And Huss's last words were, in a hundred years, God will raise up a man who calls for reform that cannot be suppressed. And Huss died in 1415. And in 1517, Luther nailed his 95 theses on the Wittberg Castle church door. Almost exactly a hundred years to the day. In the 16th century, as the study of Greek and Hebrew were recovered in Western Europe after being forbidden for a thousand years, Martin Luther and other reformers translated the Bible into the languages of the people from the original Hebrew and Greek, and Luther completed his New Testament in German in 1522. Four years later, William Tyndale translated the New Testament from Greek into English. And a few years after that, he translated the first five books of the Old Testament from Hebrew into English. And this is, by the way, why it's so important for serious Bible teachers and students to study the Greek and Hebrew languages, because that way we are not then dependent upon some other human translation for the nuances of sound doctrine and precise theology. I'll put it this way. This will make more sense. If it were not for the recovery of the study of Greek and Hebrew in the 16th century, we would all still be Roman Catholic today. Shortly after he completed his translation into English, William Tyndale was arrested as a heretic and he was strangled and burned at the stake. They strangled him while he was tied to the stake because he wouldn't stop preaching and praying even in the face of death. They couldn't take it anymore. His last words were, oh, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And then that prayer was answered two years later because King Henry VIII of England authorized the great Bible in English. Which, ironically, was primarily based on Tyndale's work, the man they had killed two years earlier. The very king who killed him authorized his translation to be used throughout all of England. The common thread, the point... That I'm trying to make is that from reformer to reformer, we see an undying commitment to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, such that they were willing to sacrifice everything, including their own lives, to get the word of God into hands of people so that the spirit of God could take the truth and transform lives. They did this because they understood that the power for spiritual reformation and revival was not in them, but in the gospel of the word of God. They used the Latin term sola scriptura to underscore that very truth and that very commitment. Sola scriptura means by scripture alone. It was ignorance of scripture that made the reformation necessary. It was the recovery of scripture that made the reformation inevitable. And it was the power of scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit 
that made the Reformation enduring. So much so that individual sinners were regenerated, transformed and given eternal life. Now, here's the thing. Whenever true revival is seen at any time in all of human history, doesn't matter if it was on the grand scale like the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century or an individual life like yours and mine. The power behind any reformation is always the word of God empowered by the spirit of God. Fifteen hundred years before the Reformation. We see this same reality at the beginning of the church age in Acts chapters two, three and four, as Peter preached the biblical gospel that the spirit of God used his words to convict the hearts of those who were there and heard. And it says many were added to the church. Listen to how Luke describes the advance of the gospel and the growth of the church in the book of Acts. In Acts 6, verse 7, he says, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly. And then in Acts chapter 12, verse 24, it says the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. We often think we want to see numbers of people growing and multiplying. But what does Luke record? That the word of the Lord grew and multiplied. Acts chapter 19, verse 20, says that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. We hear that common refrain time and time again throughout the book of Acts. The work of revival is directly connected to the spreading of the word of God. That's why the Apostle Paul explained in Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of Christ. So the word of God empowered by the spirit is the power behind any genuine revival. And this explains the rapid expansion of the early church in the book of Acts. This explains the catalyst that produced the Protestant Reformation. And today in our own lives, it's the same book, the same scriptures through the power of God's spirit that transforms us, instructs us, encourages us, convicts us, admonishes us, molds us into the image of Jesus Christ. The very same scriptures. Now, there is an Old Testament passage. I told you I would get there. You've been waiting. Some of you have had coffee and lunch before I got there, but I told you I'd get there. This is an Old Testament passage, and it illustrates this point that we're going to look at and consider with the rest of our time. And as we study out this passage, we're going to compare what was happening way back there in the Old Testament with what happened in the Protestant Reformation and what we need to see happen in our own country today. So you go to Second Chronicles, please, with me, chapter 33. And it's here in Second Chronicles that events took place more than 600 years before the birth of Christ. Second Chronicles 33 is happening more than 2,000 years before the Protestant Reformation. And here on the pages of Scripture, we see another Reformation that took place in the midst of a very dark period in Israel's history. The context or the time period of our passage today is during a time in the Middle East when power was shifting from the Assyrian Empire to the Babylonian Empire. 
The nation of Judah in southern Israel was in desperate need of reform and revival. And it's against the backdrop of this darkness that we see a powerful demonstration of the power of God's word. And we're going to arrange our thoughts this morning around three very simple points. And you see those on your outline regarding spiritual revival and the need for reformation. Those three points are the need for reformation, the catalyst for reformation and the effects of reformation. First of all, the need for reformation. Why was there a need for reformation? So the year is 695 B.C., Manasseh ascends to the throne of Judah. He's a wicked king. Ordered, he orders the execution, we believe, of Isaiah, the prophet, by having Isaiah sawn in two. I mean, that's the poster child for why do bad things happen to good people. Second Chronicles 33, look at verses 1 and 2. Manasseh was how old when he became king? Twelve. Wow. Do we have any 12 year olds in here? Would you like to be queen? Queen for a day. We'll make you queen for a day. Mom and dad. She's queen for the day. Now's a good. Oh, at my house. Oh, OK. I could do that. OK. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned how long? Fifty five years in Jerusalem. And he did what? Evil in the sight of the Lord. He acted just like the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had kicked out in Israel. Now go down to verse nine. Verse nine. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed when they entered the land. Wow. Manasseh was a seriously wicked king. Leading Judah into more sin than even the pagan Canaanites and Philistines had committed, whom God had driven out. We didn't read it, but the text shows us something tragic and unbelievable. Because you consider Manasseh as perhaps the most wicked king ever. And who was his father? Hezekiah, one of the godliest men we see. He was a godly king, but Manasseh turned his back on God and became wicked. How did this happen? Certainly, it was a result of Manasseh's own wickedness, his own hard heartedness and his pride. But the author of Chronicles makes a very interesting comment in verse 10. Look at 3310. Look what it says. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they did what? They paid no attention. Through his prophets, God sent his word to Manasseh and to Judah, but they did not listen. They willfully ignored and suppressed the word of God. And as a result, they stubbornly rebelled and the Lord responded by bringing judgment upon them and promised Judah that she was going to go into captivity. Now, don't turn there, but listen, second Kings chapter 21 Verses 10 through 15 is a parallel passage to our passage. Second Kings 21 verses 10 through 15. You don't need to turn there, but listen. Because second Kings gives God's opinion of Manasseh and it's not a pretty picture. And remember this. God has an opinion of each and every one of us and his opinion of us matters more 
than any other opinion, even more than my own opinion about myself. This is God's opinion of Manasseh in 2 Kings 21. Now, the Lord spoke to his servants, the prophets, saying, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. So God's anger burned against Manasseh and Judah because of the gross iniquity that characterized his reign as king and characterized how the people were living under his reign. And second Chronicles 33 verses 11 through 13 tells us that Manasseh was indeed taken into captivity. But something good happened in captivity. What happened? He repented, which is a good thing. But the damage he had done had already been done and the influence and legacy he had left was really hard to overcome. That often happens, doesn't it? We sin. Our sin greatly impacts others. We repent and we return to the Lord. But the damage has already been done and there are consequences that have to be dealt with. Chapter 33 there, verses 15 and 17, records that Manasseh's repentance was real because he took action that proved that it was real. But look at verse 17 of Second Chronicles 33. It points out that the damage his sin had caused resulted in right worship in the wrong place. God said you have to worship in Jerusalem. And the people were worshiping once again, but they still refused to remove their places of worship from up north where they weren't supposed to be up in the hills. And this was a sin against God's clearly revealed instructions. In fact, go down to verse 21 and we read that Manasseh's son, Amon, came to the throne after his father died. So his father reigns 55 years. Amon comes in. Look what the chronicler says about him in verse 22. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh's father had done. And Amon sacrificed to all the carved images with which his father Manasseh had made. And he served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father had done. But what did he do? He multiplied guilt. Finally, his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. So the impact and the influence of Manasseh's sin on his own son, Amon, could not be overcome in Amon's life. And it had tragic consequences, didn't it? His reign was so intolerable that his own servants assassinated him. And he reigned two years. Now, needless to say, by the end of the reigns of Manasseh and Ammon, the land of Judah was in desperate need of reformation. Right. And going back to verse 10. The need was the result of a willful and purposeful ignoring of God's truth. They ignored the word of God and the will of God. And as a result, Judah plummeted deep into spiritual darkness and idolatry. It's not an exact parallel to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, but there's some significant overlap. 
because in the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, which was from the 5th century until the 15th century, about 400 to 1400 A.D., the Roman Catholic Church in Western Europe actively suppressed the word of God. In the late 12th century, they began to ban the translation of the Bible under Pope Innocent III, a pope, I'm afraid to say, who was seriously misnamed. In 1229, at the Synod of Toulouse, the Roman Catholic Church declared, we prohibit the lay people to have the books of the Old or New Testaments. Then the Council of Tarragona in 1234 said, no one may possess the books of the Old and New Testaments in their own common language. And if anyone does possess the Old or New Testament, they must turn them over to the local bishop within eight days so that those books may be burned. The Catholic Church, rather than preaching the Bible, was burning Bibles. And after John Wycliffe and his colleagues at Oxford finished their translation of the Bible into English, the Third Synod of Oxford of the Catholic Church there condemned that translation, saying, We therefore command and ordain that henceforth no one translate the text of Holy Scripture into English or into any other language as a book, a booklet, or a tract. And he who does translate the Bible into English, let him be punished as an abettor of heresy and error. Church services at that time were conducted only in Latin and the scriptures were imprisoned within the Latin language. And the common people of Europe were kept in a perpetual state of spiritual darkness, just like during Manasseh's reign. Being purposely shielded from the word of God by a corrupt religious system. So in that sense, the dark days of Judah's history aren't really all that different from the dark days of the Middle Ages. And yet the power and the light of the word of God cannot be suppressed forever. And we see that illustrated in Second Chronicles 33 and 16th century Europe. The need for reformation arises when the word of God is lost, forgotten or ignored. What's the catalyst? Our second point. What's the catalyst for reformation? Well, we need to go to Second Chronicles 34. Second Chronicles 34. Where we see or where we meet a new king. In the opening verses of Second Chronicles 34. A new boy king named Josiah. The son of the wicked king. Amen. Look how the text describes Josiah in verse 1 of chapter 34. Josiah was how old? Eight years old when he became king. We need to go into the kids' church and pull out a king over there. And he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, how old would he have been? 16 years old. While he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And in the twelfth year of his reign, he would have been how old? Twenty. Twenty years old. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all the high places of false worship. The ashram, the carved images, and the molten images. So Josiah comes to the throne around 640 B.C. In the eighth year of his reign, he would have been 16, and he committed himself to following the Lord. And four years later, he embarks on an expansive kingdom-wide idolatry removal program. 
But the climax of Josiah's reformation program actually takes place in the eighth year of his reign. If you look at verse eight, according to chapter 34, verse eight, Josiah was beginning a renovation of the temple in Jerusalem. It had fallen into disrepair and idolatry during the reigns of his father and his grandfather. Fifty seven years. Now, we don't have time to explore this, but when you think of Josiah, think of this. He's proof that being raised by an ungodly parent does not have to result in an ungodly child. Our family and our environment might influence us, but it does not have to determine us. God's transforming word and power are greater than any other influence. So it's in the midst of this temple renovation that the construction crew discovers something that was totally unexpected. Look at verse 14. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found what? The book of the law of the Lord that had been given by Moses. Let that sink in for a moment. They find the scriptures which had been lost for 57 years. And where did they find the lost word of God? In the temple where it was supposed to be. That is ironically tragic. That the word of God had been lost in the house of God. Think about that for a moment. Those responsible for guarding and proclaiming the word of God had neglected it so much that it had gotten lost in the very place where it was supposed to be. So let me ask us this. Has the church in our time ignored and neglected the word of God so severely that it has become lost even in the church? We don't have that problem in our church. But you should know, and maybe you already know, we do have this problem in the American church. We are the exception here, not the rule. Because we love the scriptures, we cherish the scriptures, we teach the scriptures. But if you look at the American church as a whole, we would be a very small minority here in this local church. Look at verse 15. Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan, the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Now skip down to verse 18. Moreover, Shaphan, the scribe, told King Josiah, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, gave me a book. And Shaphan read it or read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he did what? Tore his clothes, a sign of repentance, of mourning. Josiah responded to the recovery of the word of God in a way that any true follower of God would. With heartfelt sorrow and repentance. Because he recognized that there was so much that they had missed because the word of God itself had been missing. He understood the reason Judah had fallen into spiritual darkness was because the word of God had been ignored and eventually lost. Remember, it tells us in scripture in the previous chapter that under Manasseh, they ignored the word of the Lord. Look at the end of verse 21. The king laments great is the wrath of the Lord, which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. And now the word had been found and its contents had been read and it pierced through the heart of King Josiah. And the inevitable result is that Judah would experience 
a reformation, a revival. Fast forward again to the Protestant Reformation, and we again see parallels between what was happening in Old Testament Judah and 15th century Europe. Because in spite of the attempts of the Roman Catholic Church to keep the scriptures locked away, imprisoning it no less, that the word of God could not be permanently concealed. The Lord raised up the human instruments in the reformers who began to recover the study of biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek so that they were no longer dependent just upon the Latin. And those translations began to permeate all throughout society, all throughout Europe. Something made possible because 70 years earlier, God had enabled a man by the last name of Gutenberg to invent a very important instrument. What was it? The printing press. Everybody gets an A. Scripture began to permeate the minds and the hearts of the people for the very first time in their lives. And what was the result? People got saved. People got saved. And we call that the Protestant Reformation, which is exactly what it was. One of the greatest revivals and reformations in all of church history. And the catalyst that caused it was not the courage or the cleverness or creativity of any of the reformers, but it was the clarity with which they proclaimed the word of truth. And as that word, which was empowered by the Holy Spirit, impacted people's lives, the result was reformation and revival. So the need for reformation occurs when the word of God is ignored The catalyst for reformation is the recovery of and the faithful preaching of God's word. Now, lastly, what then are the effects when a true reformation happens? We find that in Second Chronicles 35. Remember it that way. 34 is the need or 33 is the need. 34 is the catalyst. 35 is the effects. What happens when that which is ignored is rediscovered? What happens when that which is lost is found? Look at verse one. Then Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover animals on the 14th day of the first month. Then verses two through 15 detail all this exuberant celebration that took place throughout the whole land of Judah as they remembered God's deliverance of them from Egypt and his mighty arm that restored them out of slavery. Look at verse 16. So all the service of the Lord was prepared on that day to celebrate the Passover, to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord, according to the command of King Josiah. Thus, the sons of Israel who were present celebrated the Passover at that time and the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. There had not been celebrated a Passover like it in Israel since the days of Samuel, the prophet, nor had any of the kings of Israel celebrated Such a Passover as Josiah did with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. This Passover was celebrated. So he would have been 26 years old. And we don't have time to follow this rabbit trail. You know, I love a good rabbit trail, but we're already running out of time. But don't forget to take note of this powerful, godly young man that he was. Twenty six. Twenty six. Say it with me. Twenty six. Young people, how is your spiritual life? 
How is your walk with God? How plugged in are you to the kingdom of God in the church? 26. That blows me away. I can barely remember when I was 26. I do remember I had a full head of flowing blonde locks. Age is no age is no detriment to serving God with fervor, faithfulness, commitment. This was a once in a lifetime kind of celebration and what fueled their enthusiasm and exuberance. They found the book. They found the book. And celebration broke out like they had never seen before. They're celebrating the Passover in a way that God had prescribed it back when he gave it to Moses in Exodus 12. To remind the Israelites of their redemption, their rescue from slavery. It highlighted the mercy of God as the angel of death passed over the houses of those who had smeared the sacrificial blood of the lamb over their doorposts. Celebrating the Passover looked back, commemorating God's grace toward his people, but it also looked forward to the coming of the Messiah who would be that final ultimate Passover lamb through whom sinners can be delivered from the wrath of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. How significant then for the people of Josiah's day to consider again the reality of their redemption from slavery and look forward to the coming of their ultimate deliverer, the Messiah. All of that's wrapped up in the celebration of the Passover. Now, fast forward one last time to the Protestant Reformation. I think we can see again striking parallels of what was happening in 16th century Europe. The need for reformation had been caused by the imprisonment of God's word by the Catholic Church. The catalyst for the reformation was the rediscovery of that truth. And as a result, biblical truth was recaptured. And people's lives were changed. By the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. The reformers were committed to the authority of Christ as the head of the church. And the reformers said, if Christ is the head of the church, then the pope is not. And if Christ alone is the head of the church, then that means his word alone is the authority for the church. They called it sola scriptura, which meant that the councils and traditions of the Catholic church were not authoritative over the church. The word of God is the authority in the church and the gospel that is clearly preached and taught is the true gospel. And it is a gospel of faith that comes alone by grace in Christ alone, not a gospel of sacramental, uh, some sort of synergistic works, righteousness. And if we're saved by grace alone, the reformer said through faith alone in Christ alone, then all the glory and the credit goes to him, not to us. And therefore it is to be to the glory of God alone. The great solas of the Reformation flow out of the reality that this Bible, because of its divine origin, is the ultimate source of authority for faith and practice in the church. Just as the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, so we too are enslaved by sin. They could do nothing to deliver themselves from bondage, and neither can we. Our deliverance and our redemption is only possible because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb, to die on a cross in our place. And in the same way, then, that Judah's response to rediscovering the book of the law of Moses was to celebrate the redemption from slavery in Egypt. The reformers in 16th century Europe rediscovered the word of God, the Bible, and they celebrated their 
redemption from sin. In fact, the reformers had a saying. After darkness comes light. After darkness comes light. The darkness was the darkness of spiritual ignorance. The light was the light of the word of God shining forth into people's hearts and consciences. And individuals were transformed by the spirit, by his power, and they were set free from their enslavement to sin. So this brings us back to the question, what causes the Reformation, what fueled the Reformation? We've seen that the power behind Judah's Reformation in the 7th century B.C. was the recovery of the word of God. And the causes behind the Reformation in 16th century A.D. was also the power of the word of God. When the word was suppressed, ignored or lost, the result was spiritual darkness and wickedness and the threat of divine judgment. But when the word of God is rediscovered and it's read and it's proclaimed and it's believed, the result is spiritual sight and revival and the promise of God's blessing. Now, here is the big whammy for this morning. We've said all of this. Because we want to suggest this morning that this is still how God works in our world today. If the evangelical church in America wants to experience a much needed revival, it's not going to come through market driven techniques or man centered strategies or our own creativeness, cleverness or the strength of some preacher's personality. It will only come through the faithful preaching of the word of God and as his people obey his commands. Ironically, we live in an age where Bibles are plentiful and yet the word of God is still willfully ignored. We have to resolve in our hearts to never forget that the power for revival is found in the word of God, that true revival, real, lasting revival Which, by the way, is not the same thing as being able to draw a large crowd. Just because someone draws a large crowd doesn't mean that there's a revival going on. Real, lasting revival is always the result of the word of God being faithfully and clearly proclaimed and taught. So that hearts are penetrated by the power of the spirit and transformed and regenerated, becoming new creatures in Christ. It's important, I think, for us to realize this morning that this isn't just a corporate church body thing, but it also has to be deeply personal. Deeply personal. The word of God does its work in the hearts and minds of individuals. And we and when we think of revival, really all we're saying is that there were a lot of individual sinners who were impacted, saved and transformed by the power of the clearly taught word of God within a short period of time. So the key to revival for our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends is simply there's no no complex, you know, strategy or marketing technique or anything to it. It's simply the result of the truth of God's word being clearly spoken. And finally. As well as maybe firstly. We have to consider this morning our own hearts. When we personally, individually ignore the truth of God's word in our lives, sin inevitably abounds. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7 that 
not just everyone who hears my words is like a wise man. Everyone who hears my words and acts on them. But where the scriptures are guarded and treasured and cherished, temptation is resisted and defeated. And I think it's really important that we drive home this truth, especially in the context that we are in church where we're continually surrounded by and exposed to the teaching of God's word, because it is quite possible to fall asleep in the light. In fact, that's one of the themes of the letter to the Hebrews. If you read through that one time, sometime, it is possible to study the theology revealed in the word of God, to know its contents well enough even to pass an exam with flying colors and yet become so callous to its truth that our love for Christ and his word grows cold. It is possible, as the Lord told the Ephesians in the book of the Revelation, chapter two, to lose sight of our first love. And it's in those moments that the word of God calls us to repent, just like Manasseh did, to return, to drink more deeply from the well of truth revealed in our scriptures so that we can behold once again Jesus Christ and worship him. The scriptures call us to examine our own hearts, to use the Bible as a mirror to see ourselves so that we might be doers of the word, not just hearers. It tells us to long for the pure milk of the word so we can grow in salvation. It says to treat our Bibles like a sword to defend ourselves. Paul told the Colossians to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you so that you can respond to the Lord Jesus Christ with songs, hymns and spiritual songs. Clearly, the Bible that you have right in front of you is not an ordinary book. The author is God. Its power is divine. Its purpose is to direct sinners to the Savior so that they might be reconciled to God. Those who choose to be ignorant of what the Bible teaches or willfully suppress it or ignore it, thinking that their own wisdom somehow goes beyond God's, they do so to their own destruction, don't they? But the one who reads the scriptures, embraces it, meditates on it, does what is written in it. The scriptures promise that he will be blessed. Psalm chapter one. How blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the waters, yielding fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. So as we conclude here this morning, if we want our lives to be blessed by God. If we want our ministries in the coming year to be empowered by God, and if we want to see revival in our own life, in our family's life, in our church's life, then we must never stop being people of the book, people of the scriptures. We have to read it. We have to study it. We have to treasure it. We have to preach it in season and out of season. In other words, when it's popular and even when it's unpopular. For the glory of Christ in the advance of his church. Listen to these scriptures as we close. Hosea chapter six says, come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. The Apostle Paul declares his commitment to the same thing in Philippians three. 
listen closely to what Paul said. Philippians 3. Whatever was important to me before I knew Christ, I now consider it to be nothing compared to the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I do not think of myself as having arrived, but one thing surely I do. I forget what I've left behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The writer of Hebrews chapter 6, he admonishes us to press on to maturity. That's where some of us are here in this room this morning. We need to recommit ourselves to pressing on to maturity in Christ. That same writer in Hebrews promises that we can hold fast our confession of faith, not wavering because he who promised is faithful and we can draw near to Christ with a sincere heart in full assurance. That's Hebrews 10. James, the brother of Christ, firmly reminds us in his letter, chapter four, that we can draw near to God and he will draw near to us. But he says there in James four, we have to be careful to cleanse our hands because we're sinners. And here's where a lot of us are right here. This next line, we have to purify our hearts from double mindedness. Folks, some of us are trying to be of the world and of the Lord. In our hearts, in our passions, in our desires, in our motivations. And the Lord says that doesn't work. He says, be miserable, mourn and weep. He's talking about repentance. Let your laughter turn into mourning and your joy to gloom as you repent. You humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So on your outlines, you have what we need to do as a church. For reformation, we have to immerse our hearts and minds in the scriptures so that we can discern truth from almost truth. In this day and age in which we live, folks, it's not so much discerning truth from air, because the scriptures tell us the air comes out of the church. So really, the, the thing that we need to do is learn to discern truth from almost truth. We have to obey the truth we already know. We have to thoroughly train our Bible teachers to accurately handle the word of God. We have to have faith to rely on Christ, the head of the church, to build his church by the power of the pure gospel, not by man-centered, market-driven strategies and techniques. And these are all on your outline. We must love Christ more than we love the world. And we have to compassionately and boldly speak the truth and love folks to both the world and to the church. Last slide. This is what you must do personally. If we are to have revival in this country. Revival begins with the church. It begins with Christians, not with unbelievers, not with the world. It begins with you. How well do you know the word of God? How much do you love it? How committed are you to it? How deeply have you gone into the word of God? And what do you have to do to go deeper Some of you are just skimming the top. Some of you are just Bible skimmers. And that very Bible says that should not be. Who are the lost that you personally know? How much have you shared the word of God with them? How often do you pray for their salvation? How often do you pray for open opportunities to share the word of God with them? 
And then lastly, as we've already said, America needs revival and revival begins with the church. And you and I are the church. So how are you being revived by the word of God, the instrument of revival? Let's stand together. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I know we've stayed a long time today, but I just feel this is very important. I really believe that our country is in desperate need of reformation and revival. And it must begin with the church. Father, so much of our American church has turned its back on the scriptures. Of true, meaty, deep study and preaching and teaching. And it's all become love-driven and mercy-centered, which are important, but not above the clear teaching of the Word of God. And Father, even some of us in our own body here, I fear, have become very worldly, have really hitched their star to the wagon of the world. And things have become so important that really, in your estimation, carry absolutely no importance whatsoever. And some of us here have neglected our first love. We need to recommit to spiritual things. We need to allow the word of God to revive our hearts. To bring us to a point of repentance and transformation. We need to take advantage of the opportunities you have given us to read the scriptures. Study the scriptures, memorize the scriptures, obey the scriptures. Because it's only when your people obey your word that you will reverse course for a nation. Father, may we not look elsewhere for revival, but may we look into the mirror. Because revival starts with each one of us as your individual people. So, Father, as we head into the new year soon, I pray that you would revive us, that you would reform us, that you would give us a voracious, insatiable appetite for your word and to obey it and to follow you. Father, we thank you. We praise you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for the freedom we have to gather together. May we take full advantage of it while we have it to press on to know you. So we thank you, Father, as we begin to celebrate the Christmas season for our Lord and Savior entering the world to rescue us from our sins and give us eternal life. We leave here today rejoicing, thanking you for every good thing that happened in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here today. Hope you have a very restful day.